As we record, there's a, a big whale selling a bunch of Bitcoin. It's not Elon Musk. It's not Michael Saylor. Is it Satoshi? <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not the uh, Satoshi coins coming online. No, no, it's the U.S. government, Dad. They're, today, as we record, they're selling 9,800 Bitcoin, and they've announced that they intend to sell 41,500 more Bitcoin that are connected to the Silk Road. They're finally offloading their Silk Road haul. Seems like a bad time to sell. Maybe they should have tried to time the market and uh, sell at the highs. Well, or, you know, you could flip the script and put your uh, tinfoil hat on and think, geez, you know, the Fed and the SEC and the CFTC have been doing everything they can to bring price down and price has been going up. So maybe this is like another valve that they can turn to try to suppress the value of Bitcoin for whatever reason. I mean, this isn't really something I think of, but I, so I don't have that reason figured out. But there is that in the back of my mind. It's like the timing on this is weird. Why would they sell at a market top right now unless they're trying to drop price a little bit? I feel like this show comes alive when we disagree. So I, I disagree because if they really wanted to tank the price, they wouldn't have done an OTC over the counter trade with private parties. They really wanted to tank the price. They would have loaded up their Coinbase account. <laughs> the Secret Service or whoever custodies these coins would have opened up a Coinbase account and a Kraken account and a Binance account and then market sold. If there was a more coordinated sort of attempt to suppress Bitcoin price, they could have just market sold these into the wild and actually suppress the price. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think the reason why we're actually finding out about this is because of the details around the court filing where they disclosed this. So the actual transaction happened on March 14th. We're finding out about it today. So that's really what went on. But I, I, I like to entertain the idea because I've already seen people speculating online. The thing that is also been that people point to is, well, why pre-announce that you're going to sell more? Right? Why pre-announce that? But I think the reason is, is because the U.S. government was making disclosures in a court filing. And that's just part of the disclosure that they made is that they intend to sell more of it. You know, now the market today is assimilating that news. Just for some background, these coins were seized when the U.S. government captured Ross Ulbrich, who was known as the Dread Pirate Roberts, Rogers or Roberts, on the Silk Road forums. And the allegation is that Ross ran the Silk Road, which is, of course, a darknet marketplace accessible via Tor that enabled people to buy drugs and other items online. I think also weapons, maybe. There's the allegation that you could also hire assassins on the Silk Road. I don't know how true that is. And Ross was given an incredibly punitive jail sentence. I think it was several lifetimes, like two life sentences or something. You know, one of these jail sentences, it's just like the judge is pounding their gavel. Yeah. Making an example out of him. Exactly. Because, you know, now this will teach all those kids not to run dark net marketplaces. And meanwhile, poor Ross was only in his 20s, right? So now his youth is gone, right? He's, he's almost 40 now. In the Bitcoin space, there's the free Ross movement that makes the argument that Ross never committed a violent crime. So why is his life going to be spent behind bars? And Ross communicates via letters, I think, to his mother, who then will make a Twitter post uh, based on things he relates. And it's pretty clear that he's being tortured in the sense that he's in a facility that keeps incarcerated people in solitary confinement for something like 23 hours a day. You know, not to sound soft on crime or something, but that is torture. You know, humans are social animals. And if you lock someone in a small room and don't allow them any human contact, they will lose it. It is mental torture. And he just facilitated a marketplace that was on tour, right? He didn't even sell the drugs. It is an overreach and a massive 
punishment for what seems to be a crime that doesn't fit. And I think the real crime here is that it was incredibly subversive, right? People just going and doing and creating marketplaces beyond the jurisdiction of the government and selling products that the government temporarily doesn't like. I mean, I think one of the big items on there was marijuana, which is now legal. So why is it such a big deal? Yeah. I think the point is that people who don't comply get punished. And he was building a system that was outside the traditional established systems. And so I think there was that make an example out of him. And another element is that some of the FBI agents who were involved in investigating and arresting him, they stole a bunch of Bitcoin. And so there was corruption among the law enforcement officials who were pursuing him. And in fact, at least one of these FBI agents was sent to jail afterwards. And this, of course, is not disclosed in his trial. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have made a difference. At the same time, it seems quite hypocritical to punish Ross so severely while the people punishing him were literally stealing Bitcoin from the funds that were confiscated. Yeah, yeah there was dirty play all there all along. Um, so the government said that they plan to offload approximately 41,500 more Bitcoin. We kind of have that to look forward to. And they say that they're going to do it in four installments throughout the year. So far, that's what their plan is. This information is just coming to light today. I'll put a link in the show notes if people are curious. And that document, uh, the court filing, is linked in the story that will be in the notes. And this has to do with a case involving Zhang, who I think was the guy who lived in Georgia, who stole 50,000 Bitcoin from the Silk Road because he discovered a way to essentially double withdraw funds out of the system. He found that flaw, which was really basic, super simple. He's even described it before. And you, when you hear it, you're like, oh, yeah. So you were just kind of like poking at URLs and got a bunch of Bitcoin and figured out the timing of this thing. And oh, OK, it was a really basic rudimentary attack. But he got a lot of Bitcoin for it. And he sat on it for the longest time. It's a sad story because, you know, honestly, you know, maybe this says something about our values. But, uh, you know, guys poking at web URLs and money falls in his lap. It's like discovering the ATM that's just spitting out dollar bills. Like if you catch those dollar bills, are you a criminal? Technically, yes. But like it's you're making it so easy to be a criminal here. You almost can't blame the person is kind of my point of view on this. And if only Jong had not been such a troll online and detailed what he'd done, he might have gotten away with it. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting to see these interconnect, don't you think? These cases. I think this is maybe the third story that we've had on the pod since it started about some actor that has Bitcoin that are connected to Silk Road that the authorities are, are coming around to finally getting even like in the last year. It's interesting that it's still going. It's an ongoing open case. The cautionary tale here is that the Bitcoin blockchain history is forever. What you post online, that is also in many cases forever. And law enforcement and adversaries have all the time in the world to put all these pieces of data you put out into the world together and to come after you. That's the takeaway. You got to you got to be careful now and have to practice uh, best best practices for security whenever you can use decentralization whenever you can, because any trace you leave, they have all the time in the world to put it together, because here we are a decade later and they're still putting it together. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on March 31st, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with. Hey, it's me. It's Chris. 
Welcome back, everybody. On today's show, we are going to discuss a civil suit by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, a U.S. body that regulates future markets, against Binance and CZ, the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange. There's some interesting news that China may also be going after Binance because Binance breaks restrictions on both U.S. and Chinese citizens accessing the platform, a rare thing that both governments can agree on. In the ongoing saga of the FTX Ponzi scheme slash crime family. There are new allegations that Sam Bankman Fried bribed Chinese officials to the tune of $40 million. That's kind of a big deal for Sam, at least. A lot of jail time associated with that. Another salacious detail in the FTX drama is that Sam's expensive legal defense seems to be being paid for by his father from funds his father received from FTX. So, yes, Sam Bankman-Fried is defending himself against the charge of stealing customers' money with money he stole from customers and gave to his dad. Who could have seen that coming? In economics and banking, I found a 2016 article that details the U.S.-Saudi Arabia debt recycling deal, the petrodollar recycling program that Lynn Alden has talked about. Kind of an interesting bit of history. Adds some color to a financial and economic story, because there's also a huge political dimension there. In Bitcoin education, we're going to cover Bitcoin Optech 244, which has a section on multi-party channels and channel factories. These are some pretty advanced topics, but I think we can use them to talk a little bit about how Lightning works and maybe even how Bitcoin, which is underneath Lightning works. So might be a good time for review. And then we have some mega boosts to discuss and that's our show looking forward to it it's a nice uh, mix this week because there hasn't been any like oh my gosh the world is ending but there's definitely pieces that are clicking into place that i think will have ramifications that are worth discussing uh you know sort of like the u.s government offloading forty-five thousand bitcoin will have some ramification indeed and our first story is about the civil case from the cftc against Binance and CZ, Changpeng Zhao, who is the CEO. And this case is kind of interesting because I think it's been pretty well known for a while that Binance, from the perspective of the U.S. government, flouts the law. But there's been remarkably little action, at least overtly, from the U.S. government. And in fact, I think that there was news a year ago that Binance was negotiating with the U.S. government and was pretty confident that they could just pay a huge fine, you know, hundred, two hundred million dollar fine and come into compliance and be forgiven for their past indiscretions when it comes to U.S. financial law. But it seems like that deal is no longer on the table. And the CFTC is the first U.S. government entity to take a poke at Binance, alleging that they have violated derivatives, future contract laws. You know, I find this interesting from a kind of a high level standpoint. The uh, CFTC commissioner, I'm forgetting her name because I'm horrible with names, but she was in a Senate testimony and she was there with Gary from the SEC. Uh, the SEC was outlining, you know, have they basically have like a hundred enforcement cases running right now. And uh, the CFTC was asked how many crypto enforcement cases they have. And this was about a month ago. And her answer was none at the moment, but stay tuned. There's a lot coming was her answer. And so here we see one of the first lawsuits by the CFTC. This is one of the ways I believe that these government bodies try to assert themselves as the regulator for this area. And the CFTC, I think, wants a little bit of the crypto action. And so they're throwing around some legal weight here in an area that's applicable to where they oversight. 
I'm kind of surprised it's taken this long. Some of this stuff should have been done years ago. Again, I've talked about this. I don't like regulation through enforcement. Straight up, I don't think that's a great way to stoke innovation. At the same time, you have to have enforcement at some point to stop people from getting hurt and scammed. And we just went through years of people getting hurt and scammed. And now they're finally getting around to it to try to get their piece of turf. And I just think that's the wrong motivation and the wrong incentive. But it's just my opinion. Let's start this story at the beginning. Binance is a cryptocurrency exchange that was started in 2017 by CZ on the Chinese mainland. It very quickly moved off of the mainland, and CZ has maintained that they have no presence on the mainland. They they don't have servers there. They are international. Where Binance is physically based, that's a great question, and it's a big secret. And I think many cryptocurrency exchanges are very secretive about the location of their physical infrastructure, because if you know where those servers are, you could literally steal money by physically accessing them. So secrecy makes sense from a security perspective. At the same time, Binance takes it to an extreme, and they very clearly operate in a sort of gray legal zone where they seem to be kind of stateless. They perhaps selectively comply with KYC and anti-money laundering controls. And part of the complaint against Binance is that they're geofencing. The measures they took to prevent U.S. customers from accessing the platform were completely insufficient. It was just IP-based geofencing and that Binance employees literally told people how to circumvent the geofencing using a VPN. I think for people in the Bitcoin space, our reaction is, yeah, no, duh, of course, everyone knows that. And I think that was pretty obvious to anyone who investigated the issue. The question is, why pursue enforcement now as opposed to two or three or maybe even four years ago? That's what I was kind of trying to raise is it seems like this must be a a way to sort of assert the CFTC in this space, which maybe isn't necessarily a bad thing. So their complaint alleges that Binance grew their U.S. business basically like you just outlined, and that then they started offering them commodity derivatives to U.S. customers specifically since July of 2019 despite never registering with the CFTC, as they point out. So now they want fees, you know, fines, and they want permanent trading bans on some of this stuff. And they also are hitting them with the claim that Binance did not have any procedures to prevent terrorist financing and money laundering. They also claim that internal communications from management told staff to delete messages automatically from U.S. customers. So that way, if they got audited, they wouldn't be there. And it sounds like when you read through the actual filing, they have some sort of insider who shared chats with the CFTC directly. So they have like screenshots of chats and direct quotes from internal chat messaging. So they seem to really maybe have them on some of this stuff. And I think that's what makes the complaint, which is a civil suit, this is not a criminal suit, pretty interesting because clearly they've turned a couple people or at least one internally who is providing internal communications. So there's a lot to mine through here. My sense is that the way that U.S. law enforcement works is just because you've been sued civilly by a regulator doesn't mean a criminal complaint is not in the mail. And often these civil cases, they surface evidence that can be used in future criminal cases. So it is probably the case that there will be future action against Binance and not just Binance. My sense is that there is fear that the legal argument that the CFTC is using here might also be applied to Coinbase. Yeah, I was wondering about that myself. Uh, Now, Coinbase is traditionally a little bit better about doing some of their homework on this stuff. But I think you could argue a lot of the things they sell are derivative products. In fact, 
I think you could argue that any ERC-20 token is a derivative product and any crypto that they help people buy and sell that is an ERC-20 token is a derivative of Ethereum. And I don't know, maybe that's a whole issue, but I don't know if they're getting that technical. Coinbase has been a lot smarter about trying to walk the line with the regulators. And the fact remains that Binance is 60% of the global crypto spot market. They are huge. They make Coinbase and Kraken and Gemini look tiny by comparison. So actions against Binance, this could have a huge impact on how crypto markets function. So it's interesting to watch. Uh, The Bitcoin angle is, again, sort of who cares. Stuff like this might create uh, negative sentiment and might short term suppress the price and adoption of Bitcoin long term. I don't really think it matters too much. This was to be expected. This is what the U.S. government does with financial businesses that don't comply with draconian financial laws. They get sued and then they get criminally investigated. It's kind of how it works. Let's just create a little uh, scenario. Not saying this is the way I want it to be, but let's just create a little scenario where the Michael Saylors and the uh, grayscales of the world with their ETFs, they kind of get their way. And Bitcoin becomes a legitimate alternative to gold in the large percentage of the market that's buying and selling these types of commodities. So that we successfully, the brand of Bitcoin is right up there with gold, perhaps surpassing it. And everybody is aping in with big money. And so we're getting that price way up there, getting up in the millions. Well, how how do we exist in a world where Bitcoin is a million dollars without these quote unquote traditional financial institutions, these quote unquote trusted organizations? The way you get there is by slowly and methodically taking out all these cowboy operations and reducing choice down to established, well-trusted market players, big custodians, big names like NASDAQ and others that the people trust. And you don't buy and sell Bitcoin through these Wild West organizations where you don't even know where they're operated out or what their intentions are and what's going on behind the scenes and what kind of ridiculous trading against their customers they might be doing with 300 bot accounts. Like, you don't have to worry about that. I'm not saying it's a better world, but I'm saying in order for Bitcoin to to reach that point where it's, you know, a a commodity that is worth a million dollars or more, we're going to have to go through a transition like this. And Bitcoin technologically will always allow for peer-to-peer sales. People always build around their own nodes. It's built into the protocol. But for the average rich guy to go drop, you know, a million dollars on buying some Bitcoin for everybody to become, you know, to everybody get a little bit of the sailor fever, it's going to have to be through traditional financial instruments and institutions. And you don't get there with finance, you eliminate them. That's how you get there. Or you do as much elimination into the Western economy you can, right? That's how you get to this eventual sailor future. Right. And I don't think you're saying that's the ideal future. But what I'm hearing is that people like Michael Saylor, who is the CEO of MicroStrategy, which is a business analytics software company that essentially turned itself into kind of a Bitcoin ETF because they've purchased, I think, thousands of Bitcoin. They just purchased like another 3000 a week ago. It's ridiculous. It's like 1% of all the Bitcoin in the circulation now. MicroStrategy is controls almost as much Bitcoin as Grayscale Investment Trust. It's, I think. it's, it's almost proper degen at this point, right? I mean, it is, right? It's, it's a degen right. behavior. Like, how much Bitcoin do you really need? We're not saying that this is an ideal future, but Michael Saylor, he's a pretty establishment guy. He was essentially a dot-com era founder who made a bunch of money on a tech company, the stock 
went nearly to zero, but he kept it alive for the 20 years afterwards and then pivoted hard into Bitcoin. And he views it as a savings technology because for a company with a corporate treasury that had to do a lot of treasury cash management, you know, buying government debt that was yielding an interest rate under inflation seemed like a bad deal. And Bitcoin, you know, scratched a niche for him there. Well, and to his credit, he apparently saw something that Silicon Valley Bank didn't see. He saw it coming two years before. I mean, right. I mean, to his credit, he saw where this inflation situation and the resulting yield on the bonds was going years ago. Sure. And I think he's been very successful in that endeavor. That said, he is very comfortable with a KYC'd future for Bitcoin, where Bitcoin is kind of just another financial asset. It's mostly held in custodians. And I see a problem with that analysis because let's just move back to gold for a second. So there's this perception that gold is the asset you hold in times of trouble, in times of uncertainty. Since 2019, with the COVID crash and the various uh, financial market uh, volatility events, gold has really not done much. It hasn't really performed. And I think many gold bugs have been scratching their heads. They're waiting for this breakout where gold suddenly protects their wealth against uncertainty again. And it just hasn't happened. So what's going on? And I think that one of the big issues is that the main way that investors access gold is via gold ETFs. There are a couple really big ones. There's one called GLD. There's another one called the, I think the Aberdeen Gold Trust. There, there are a couple. And these ETFs essentially somehow get exposure to gold. I think they buy gold certificates from companies that uh, warehouse gold. The uh, most famous organization that does this is called the LBMA, London Bullion Market Association. And uh, frankly, I think there are some legitimate questions as to is all the gold in these vaults? They've, uh, I think the auditing history is not very good. So there's some question there. But the real issue is that when you buy a gold ETF, you are not buying gold. You are buying a financial proxy instrument for gold. And when the first gold ETF came into the market, which I think was about 10 years ago, maybe maybe 15, there was this huge pump in the price of gold. You know, when people were able to suddenly just buy gold, put it in their retirement portfolio, put it in their brokerage account, and institutions did this too, there was this massive jump up in the price of gold. And since then, it's been pretty stable. So I think that financializing a product like gold or like Bitcoin, it will likely result in a much larger market cap. But once you do that, once people are holding an ETF share instead of the physical commodity, be it gold or Bitcoin, it becomes an ETF share. It becomes a financial instrument. And so buying gold today, even buying physical gold, doesn't give you the same sort of price experience as a world where there was no ETF, because even the physical gold is sort of tied to the ETF pricing. And the ETF is just a financial instrument, if that makes sense. It's interesting to just sort of watch the gold bugs sort of digest this. As we record today, gold's down pretty significantly for gold, too, which you don't normally see it move this much in a single day, but it's down um, almost $10, well, $9 as we record now, uh, down uh, almost 0.5% today and uh, really a dramatic drop. It, it's funny, just as we happen to be recording, the price of gold, the price chart looks like a, a, 
a ship coin. It's just dropping like a rock right now as we record for gold. It's, you know, all, all things within context. But yeah, I guess it uh, guess it's a little more complicated than everybody's going to flock to gold. <laughs> right. And I think there's a concern that if Bitcoin takes the path of gold, it becomes just yet another captured financial instrument that might do some favors for your portfolio when you're doing portfolio construction of your financial assets. But does it provide a true alternative to our current custodial financial system? Well, no, not if you buy the Bitcoin ETF. It only works if you hold physical Bitcoin. You need to own the underlying asset. Um, and that's been advice for a while. I think it still would be a, an improved world because there would those those of us who have been you know DCAing for years or stacking however you stack, uh, we'll have those coins. You know, so it's already reached a point. When you look at something like seventy six percent or some ridiculously high number of Bitcoin that isn't moving right now, that people are just hodling in their wallets. That is, um, I think, right. Like you can't put that back in the bottle. That is that toothpaste, as they say, is out of the tube. So I feel like even if the, if Bitcoin did go all ETFy in the future and became basically the toy of the rich, those of us who have been following along from the beginning are still going to benefit from that. And that's still quite a bit of Bitcoin that'll be in circulation that can do peer to peer trading that could be loaded on the Lightning Network and exchange between each other. There's so much of that out there, especially if you consider the value of Sats is going to go up. So what a thousand sats buys you today will be different than what a thousand sats buys you in this etfe sailor world that the amount of sats that are in circulation today are going to go far they're going to do you're going to get a lot for that so i don't think it'll be as bad as say like what happened to gold and you have the actual genuine scarcity which of course an etf papers up a little bit but at least the asset has a real scarcity if you go look at the supply of gold and the price of gold i mean just looking at the manufacturing charts and looking at the price charts it looks manipulated you can see moments where inventory just comes up and it just to me seems like somebody's managing that price oh, right the structure of a market also depends on who holds the assets and the largest holders of gold in the world are national central banks it's a reserve asset on on the balance sheet of serious central banks like the Federal Reserve, like the Russian Central Bank, like the People's Bank of China. These are some of the world's largest gold holders. Anyway, that was a digression. But it is interesting to look at, you know, gold, I think, and the Bitcoin comparison will become even more common as uh, average folks start looking at Bitcoin. I, mean, I remember during the last bull run, I had several family members that were coming to me and asking me, like, is this like gold like that? That is a connection people can understand. So I think to us long timers, we're going to roll our eyes and be like, oh, man, we've had this conversation a million times. But for people that are going to discover Bitcoin in the next few years, a lot of them are going to be just making that connection. And this is going to be a conversation that comes up over and over. And then they'll do the gold silver debate. Pass. Yes. I don't want to get yes. into it. Yeah, that's that's where I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> There's no second best. There is no second best. <laughs> <laughs> so you found this article and I, I swear we've must have referenced this deal three or four or five times on the show. But it's a, this historic partnership between the U.S. and the Saudis that essentially went secret for decades. It was established, I think, back in the mid 70s, if I'm recalling correctly. And it was this deal that really kind of enshrined this long term partnership where the Saudis would accept U.S. dollars for oil and really created the petrodollar system that powers the world trade today and makes the U.S. currency such a sticky reserve currency. And this article 
sort of breaks it all down. And I, I think you were saying earlier that this was written kind of at a, like a quintessential time in relations. And so that's why we've got this peek into what went down. So this article came out in 2016. And at that moment in 2016, I think there was some um, illegal case where the families of the 9-11 uh, hijacker victims, they were suing the House of Saud, the Saudi royal family, because the 9-11 hijackers, I mean, they were all Saudi for some reason. And they'd, you know, ended up uh, in Afghanistan and then in the U.S., but they were all Saudis. And so there was some kind of uh, anger, resentment that, you know, Saudi Arabia clearly has a political, religious radicalization problem. And I think the sentiment was that they had exported that problem to the U.S. And now, you know, you have Saudi people who are sort of disaffected in their own country, flying planes into American buildings and military facilities. As that suit was pending, the House of Saud, uh, because it is a monarchy, you know, it's not it's not like a state in the uh, in the same way that the United States is, was talking about how they would divest from U.S. government securities. And I think to a certain extent they have. They certainly haven't been purchasing uh, U.S. government debt in the quantities that they have in the past. And interestingly enough, that actually relates to the Silvergate and Silicon Valley Bank uh, insolvencies, because a lot of the foreign buying of treasuries that sort of reduced in the past 10 years, the slack was taken up by changes in the way that the U.S. regulates bank balance sheets that encourage them to purchase the additional treasury securities that weren't being sucked up by foreign markets. So it all comes together really nicely. What the story kind of reveals is that there's always a strong political motivation for economic arrangements. And the story of the petrodollar was in no sense inevitable. What happened was during the 1974 OPEC oil embargo, which was the oil producing and exporting nations of the Middle East, stopped selling directly to the U.S., uh, stopped selling oil directly to the U.S. in protest of the U.S.'s support of Israel in the Six-Day War. And this resulted in an energy shock that caused the price of gasoline to increase 300%, and inflation was rearing out of control in the 1970s. I don't know if all of it was due to the energy shock, but certainly a lot of it was. And so the Nixon administration sent a former Salomon Brothers, which is a Wall Street firm, which I think has since uh, gone bankrupt or uh, something happened to them, to Saudi Arabia to negotiate a deal by which the Saudi kingdom would essentially recycle their dollar oil profits into U.S. government debt. And in exchange, the U.S. would politically support Saudi Arabia and also militarily support them and allow them to purchase high-tech U.S. military hardware, which would enable Saudi Arabia to uh, essentially uh, fight their neighbor Iran, which was a thing they've uh, really enjoyed doing until very recently. I think recently there was actually a Chinese brokered peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which is probably causing the U.S. foreign uh, affairs uh, community to lose their minds. But this deal was very interesting because one stipulation on the Saudi side of the deal was that purchases of U.S. government debt had to be secret. And it seems quite well documented in this article that the U.S. Treasury obliged and essentially held secret auctions that were not recorded in official statistics where Saudi Arabia was sold U.S. government debt directly without a public auction, which is pretty, I don't know if that's illegal, but it was certainly not a standard practice. Mm -hmm. Seems a little dirty. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that continued for about 40 years. So the TLDR is that Saudi Arabia owned way more U.S. government debt than official numbers would suspect. It was likely stored in offshore financial centers. It was a big secret until I think around 2000 or 2004 when the uh, documents uh, relating to this were declassified. Yeah, it's uh, one of those reads where you like you read through and you're like, oh, this explains why we go on about human rights issues and we advocate for human rights issues at, at platforms like the U.N., But then at the same time, it was the U.S. that made it possible for the Saudis to have an influential role at the U.N. And it's the Saudis that are often the greatest violators of human rights. And so it's always been this like hypocrisy that I think the American people are aware of to some degree. It's like, why do we support the Saudis so strongly when they clearly violate all these things that we proclaim to stand for? And it's this little dirty arrangement that explains so much of that and the war in Yemen and just our general support for Saudis over all the years and why when it did seem like there was a connection during 9-11 that was pretty much suppressed and kept pretty quiet because it's a delicate balance of keeping them happy so that way they stay they keep using the U.S. dollar which is beginning to change we're, we're now seeing announcements of deals that will be selling oil with the Saudis that don't use the U.S. dollar. And it does appear that the Saudis have decreased their holdings of U.S. securities by 36.7 percent in the last two years as of last year. They've bought some, they sell some, but on on average, they're decreasing by by nearly 40 percent their holdings. Like there is something shifting for sure. I think that it's easy and perhaps I'm guilty of this in the past to look at these bilateral deals where Saudi Arabia is selling some oil in renminbi or rubles or dinars or you know some deal where oil is not being sold in dollars and say listen look at that that's the end of the petrodollar system you know it's a new monetary era and i think that in a sense that's true but the change is not predictable it's not necessarily fast and as of today the vast majority of global energy is still priced in dollars yeah, yeah. although doesn't it seem like it's going to be uh a million cuts over time that begin to change that trend. Exactly. So I think maybe that's why people like like it, it becomes headline news when the Saudis announce that they're going to use whoever's currency to buy and sell oil because it's it adds up. It starts to stack up over time. But you're right. We shouldn't we shouldn't overstate the influence it has because it's not the reserve currency status of the U.S. dollar isn't going away anytime soon. There are both political and economic reasons for energy producers to diversify their oil sales away from U.S. dollars. One aspect is that in the 1970s and 80s, the U.S. was the majority of the world's financial markets. There wasn't developed stock markets in China or so much in Europe and other places. Today, that's no longer the case. India and China are not only over a third of the world's population, they also have very large economies. I think combined, they're larger than the U.S. economy. So that means that if you're a energy exporting nation, you're going to need to park your energy profits somewhere. If you're going to be investing in Indian and Chinese stock markets, well, why not just buy their currency directly? Then you don't need to pay fees and use the U.S. dollar as a carrier currency to invest in those markets when you were going to do it already. So there are both political and economic reasons for these shifts. 
the energy politics of the 20th century are deeply entwined with the monetary history of this period. And I think that if you want to learn more, there's a great book called Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century by Helen Thompson that really explores the political, monetary, and energy politics that overlap and uh, kind of lead us to Bitcoin. Though I don't, I don't think she gets there. Not yet, at least. Maybe one day. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by one of my shows, the Coda Radio Program. We've been getting into the actual practical nitty, nitty, nitty gritty details, I guess, of uh, implementing chat AI and chat bots into products as independent developers. It's kind of busting some of the hype, but also kind of, you know, leaning in where things are actually true and it can actually perform. It's been a really interesting discussion. So check out coder.show. That's been evolving as uh, all this stuff goes on. Show's been going on for nearly 10 years or maybe more around there and uh, better than ever. Go to radio program at coder.show or go find all the great Jupiter Broadcasting programs. They're over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. I really enjoyed that episode with, is it Michael Dominic? Mm-hmm, Mr. Dominic. Mr. Dominic, because I've been uh, working on custom Ansible modules professionally and I am not a very good developer. So having an AI <laughs> assistant that could help me yeah. create tests, yeah, that would be great. Just let ChatGPT write the Ansible playbook for you. I have to check it, though. That's my yeah, role. Yeah, probably. yeah, probably. Yeah. Roll the dice. This week's Bitcoin Optech number 244 is really a banger. I think I read this three or four times and barely understand it. So how on earth are we qualified to talk about it? Well, we're not, but we're going to try anyway. I think it's important to first cover a concept known as a channel factory. I think the idea of a channel factory is a way of opening a channel between nodes that doesn't go on chain, right? And you can have multiple nodes involved in that somehow. (laughs) That's my great explanation of it. It's not really something I've ever been exposed to on Lightning. I can imagine that that being a useful feature, maybe for privacy. Now, that's an excellent lead in because it really gets to kind of the heart of how Lightning is so weird and kind of contrary to Bitcoin, which is totally trustless and it's right there on the chain. You know, there's no ambiguity. Whereas Lightning essentially is a way of scaling unconfirmed transactions to create fast and cheap payments. You know, how does that work? And and oddly enough, in many ways, Lightning is very similar to our traditional financial system in that if you've ever dealt with uh, ACH transfers or receiving credit card payments, you'll realize that most transactions take a very, very long time to confirm. And there's a lot of ambiguity about what can happen in the meantime. So in a regular Lightning channel, the way that Lightning works today, we if we want to open a channel between us, we create a two of two multi-signature address. That means that to spend from this address, both I need to sign it and Chris needs to sign it. Because dual funded channels is, I think, a relatively new and experimental feature, I think only offered in Core Lightning from Blockstream, most Lightning channels are only funded by one party. So I'm actually sending my Bitcoin into a channel, into an address where I need Chris's assistance to spend from it. That sounds crazy, right? Like, why would I give up my ownership and need Chris's help to withdraw from that channel? And the answer is, before I send in the funds, we collaborate to create pre-signed transactions to withdraw the funds. So we could uh, create a lightning channel where I send funds into the channel. And then the next second, I think, you know what? Actually, I just read this article about how Chris is so uh, tricky. I want my money back. And I could immediately get it back because we created a pre-signed withdrawal transaction. And because of the magic of cryptography, we can confirm with software that all of these transactions are valid and no one's being tricked. 
And of course, the, the, the reason that we create lightning channels, even though we are sort of uh, giving up a little bit of our claim on these Bitcoin, is because now in an off-chain state, so not on the Bitcoin blockchain, we can update the state of this channel and I can send Chris fractions of a Bitcoin, he can send them back to me, and if we have channels with many different people, they can route through us and this creates this super fast payment system, which is all off-chain. All of these updates are off-chain. They're on a lightning node, but they're not on the Bitcoin blockchain. And so we're not putting additional data on the Bitcoin blockchain. We're saving all that space for inscriptions, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not transactions. So channel factories take this to a greater degree. In a channel factory, multiple people send funds into a multi-sig address. So I think if there are three people, then they put the funds into a three of three multi-sig. If there are four, it would be a four of four multi-sig. Because you have multiple people sending funds into one UTXO, they can all open channels with each other, if that makes sense. So instead of a two of two multi-sig, that's a, a channel between me and Chris, a three of three multi-sig might be a channel between me, Chris, and then a channel between Chris and um, maybe we opened it with uh, Paul Storks. So you, a channel between Chris and Paul and a channel between me and Paul. So we've actually got three channels. So a key takeaway here is these are really kind of like multi-sig agreements that are happening here. And I wonder if this is how the Lightning Network Plus app that I mentioned last week on the show is actually working, is like these channel factories. Because with the Lightning Network Plus app, Lightning Network Plus, you open up channels amongst three or four nodes. You either create a triangle or a square. And I'm wondering if that's a, is that essentially using a channel factory on the back end, potentially? I'm going to go look at their white paper because that, that sounds like what must be happening. I wonder, I don't think so. I believe that channel factories are still experimental and theoretical. So I think that these services like Lightning Network Plus are manually opening up channels uh, in this shape to sort of get the, maybe part of the benefits of a channel factory, but using the traditional Lightning 2 of 2 multi-sig structure. I mean, the TLDR is that channel factories are a way for more people to collaboratively open lightning channels. And you can kind of get the sense that it's more complicated than the two of two multi-sig channel that lightning is currently based on. But there's definitely some efficiency here, because if we can collaborate with four people who we know, and we make one on-chain transaction that creates one UTXO, and suddenly we have, I guess it would be uh, four factorial lightning channels. So it'd be 10 channels out of one UTXO. That's really, really efficient. I mean, that means that the Lightning Network has more channels faster. It means that the Bitcoin chain state is smaller. It means we spent less on transaction fees. It's cool. It definitely is a, a useful thing to work on. It makes me feel like Lightning is going to just slowly get better and better. And I'm already, as everybody listens to this show knows, I'm already very, very bullish on Lightning. I think this is going to be the thing that makes it possible to do instant microtransactions for normies with nice apps on top. And adding liquidity quickly to the network and getting channels opened when, you know, maybe you have a lot of sales going on or something big like a launch event. And so people are donating or it's a podcast that had a great episode. Being able to onboard more channel capacity really quickly, perhaps even automated, like so we could just do it instantly, yeah, I think is going to be key to scaling the Lightning Network. And this week's Optech has a very long section which describes how in a multi-party channel, you can run into situations where channels get unbalanced or Bitcoin gets stranded. 
And so this is essentially a pretty technical discussion on how to use uh, clever, essentially clever pre-committed transactions. So you, you sign transactions, but you don't broadcast them. But once someone broadcasts a signed transaction, it invalidates a bunch of unsigned transactions. And so it, it essentially results in a situation where if you want to get your money out of the channel factory, you can because obviously, you know, if there's a, it's a four of four multi-sig, you could think, well, there could be a problem where three people, you know, maybe want to get their funds out and one person doesn't want to cooperate. So how does this work? So essentially, there's a lot of thought on the back end to uh, make this actually work and be safe. And I don't think it's there yet, but it looks like the discussion is moving towards putting this into the lightning spec. Yeah, I think it'll get there. Like I said, I think it's pretty critical for scaling. Maybe not critical. That's probably the wrong way to put it, but it's going to be necessary as, as the network grows out and new people come on too. Uh, you could layer on applications on top of this like the like the Lightning Network Plus app that could help just coordinate all of this for people as well. It doesn't have to be like you don't have to like contact somebody and set up a channel specifically. There's going to be ways to automate it. A new update to BTC Pay server. I don't know if it's actually shipped, but it allows plugins to expose their features as an app to the BTC Pay user interface. That seems pretty necessary, actually. So does that just mean you would have more app integrations with BTC Pay server easier to build on top of it? Yeah, I think it just makes it more clear what the plugin's capable of and then just expose those UI capabilities. Remember, you can get in touch, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com, at bitcoindadpod on Twitter. But the best place to join the conversation is the Matrix channel, which is kindly hosted by Jupiter broadcasting check it out in the show notes and we got some boosts into the show and let's start with the baller boost this episode Patar boosted in with a row of granddaddy king ducks 222,222 sats and Patar writes baller boosting for visibility any serious bitcoin only podcast fan should give this show a listen listen it is scorching wow Tar did that four days ago, and in the four days, it has been fantastic for the show. I mean, Tar, thank you so much. It It is that kind of stuff that um, puts the show up in front of people's faces, and they get to try it at a time when I think, you know, the people are trying to find information about what's going on. It was just perfect timing, Patar, so thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Patar has always been present in a lot of shows, boosting them up podcast rankings, because one aspect of the boost, which honestly, I really hadn't thought about until this happened, is that uh, Fountain.fm, and I think also uh, maybe the podcast syntax or something, they track the amount of boosts that shows get because it's, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious, uh, you know, using the um, podcast index feed. And this uh, means that when you send in a big boost, you're actually raising the visibility of the show. And so it's, uh, you know, it's just really awesome because it uh, it financially supports the show. It provides an opportunity to, you know, make a comment or raise a question or express support. And it lets other people know about the show, too. So it's an incredible triple threat. And thank you so much, Vitar. I just want to add, I don't think there has been a time in podcasting where a single listener can contribute both financially and to discoverability in one action. And it's one of those things where you've made the show sustainable on multiple fronts. This is, it's it's hard to convey um, how big it was for Linux Unplugged and this show. This show had a great week in just four days. This show had fantastic numbers. Linux Unplugged saw tremendous growth at the end of Q4 because of that. If you think about when you work at something, 
so hard in podcasting. There's so much noise. The floor is so high. The noise floor is so high. And so when somebody comes through with a little bit of signal like that, that pierces your show above that noise floor, it's extremely rewarding for the podcaster who has been dedicating, you know, week after week, thinking about the show all week long, working on the show, uh, you know, editing it, put it, publishing it. It's, it's a tremendous rewarding feeling to see all of a sudden your show that you've been working at get a bunch of downloads, more downloads all of a sudden. And then people writing in saying, hey, I love the show. So not only was it, you know, got more downloads, but it clicked for a lot of people too. And so we picked up new listeners they're listening right now hello new listeners as a result and so the show is grown by one generous act and generosity follows generosity def not skynet boosted in 55,410 sats thank you so much first time booster well that's a baller boost for a first time reformed multi-coiner okay well as long <laughs> as you've realized the error in your ways <laughs> just kidding you can do what you want but we're glad you've come to bitcoin long form jb content listener sorry lan this pod helped wash away the btc energy fud that was caked on thick over my senses in response to early episode comments about greenhouse gas emissions used in production of renewables these are taken into account by life cycle emissions studies and there is a wikipedia link which we'll include in the show notes boost words of wisdom be suspicious of any number based on real world measurements that does not have error bars that's a very good point it's <laughs> always measurement error and fyi zip code sats so that boost apparently came from minneapolis minnesota thank you so much very great definitely not skynet really appreciate that great boost and that is some great wisdom right there thank you I will take that into consideration. Sir Lurksalot comes in with 7,777 sats. I checked out the fountain.fm charts to see our beloved BDP in the coming hot number four, number two right now, actually, thanks to some more generous boosts. Did you guys see a bump in listeners like Chris did with Lub in Q4 last year? I think you know the answer. I don't see you putting fountain in your split. Maybe you should consider adding that so you get boosts from other shows counted or from other podcast apps counted in the charts. If you get the bumps Lup did, it could be a good return on investment. And then he says, by the way, with another set of elite sats, uh, the row of sevens was for luck in smashing the charts. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, thanks a lot, sir. Lurks a lot. Uh, maybe that makes sense. Uh, if we add Fountain as a split, would that give us more visibility? Yeah, you add a wallet on Fountain as a split, I believe. I'm trying to remember. And then they will process that and count it towards the show. I'll, I'll, I took notes. I'll review them. I can send it to me after. I figured it out at one point. I also put Podverse in there. Even though they don't have charts, I just wanted to help support development of a GPL. Oh, yeah. I, I should do that, stuff. too, then. I'll, I'll follow your lead. Mm. Thanks so much, Lurks a lot, giving us some, uh, some advice on set, setting things up. You know, and I, I didn't check for this boost, but Lurks a lot almost always boosts in using Boost CLI, which is the nerdiest way to boost a show. Oh, yeah. Sir Lurks a lot is a massive nerd. Huge, you know, but we love nerds. We are nerds. No, so. We are nerds. <laughs> uh, J Moon boosted in five thousand sats. Want to see a magic trick? Right click on your .srt file and open with your favorite text editor. If you're having timecode issues with your transcript, use webvtt.org and save as .vtt. Wow, that is huh. really cool advice. That's worth trying. This is because I've been trying to add a transcript to the podcast using AI transcription. And I realized that 
the Whisper CPU model seems to give different outputs than the Whisper GPU Ooh, model. Fascinating. Yeah, I hadn't quite figured out all of the flags to see if I could get the raw text output that um, our podcasting RSS feed wants. So I was thinking of trying GPU-based encryption, but I'll maybe I'll give another uh, poke at uh, modifying the SRT file, and so I can still try to transcribe this on my wife's laptop, which is 10 years younger than my laptop. And so. <laughs> well, Jay Moon, thanks for that tip. WebVTT.org. That sounds useful. Opie 1984 comes in with 2,000 sats. Loving the Zeppelin dad pod. As for the Fed, oh, the humanity. Yeah. <laughs> Really? No kidding, right? You know, just a little pain. Just a little pain. Jay Stew 4255 comes in with 2,000 sats. I found this podcast this morning and can't turn it off. I've learned so much and everything I mean, everything talked about is on point. I'm now a new fan and supporter. Thanks for the podcast. And thank you so much, Jay Stew. That's really nice of you to say. Yeah. And thanks for boosting in too. We got a couple of newbies that, uh, you know, hit the old boost button early into their journey on the pod. So thank you very much. Mere Mortals podcast comes in with a row of ducks and Mere Mortals podcast is a consistent booster. Thank you very much. Uh, they say that is that 1% number regarding how much energy a Bitcoin uses? Is that real? It feels like there would be many more appliances and other inputs that would be 300, three other things that would be at least 1% more. How is it actually calculated? Well, Mere Mortals, you have come to the actual nut of the problem. <laughs> It's not that easy. Yes, because the hash rate of the Bitcoin network can be calculated based on the difficulty and the speed at which blocks are discovered. But we don't know what's generating that hash. Like if all of the miners are the latest generation S19 pros or whatever, or what's miners that are super energy efficient, then that means the network is using much less energy. But if there are huge amounts of ant miner S9s that are five or six years old that are not as efficient, then that means the energy used is much greater. So determining the energy usage means estimating what the global miner fleet is made of, you know, older miners, newer miners, stuff like that. And that's obviously unknowable. So there's a lot of assumptions involved, but the Cambridge Bitcoin Electricity Consumption Index has some sort of reasonable guesses about this. And that's how they come up with the 1% number. And thank you for the question. And also thank you for the podcast. I uh, checked out the Mere Mortals podcast uh, in the past and uh, there's some really interesting conversations on there. Hey, oh, and, uh, you know, if you go by Cambridge Bitcoin Electricity Consumption Index from the University of Cambridge, they put Bitcoin's share of uh, energy production usage around 0.22%. Other estimates are 0.6. We've seen 1%. I think the point you made last week, Dad, is the poignant one, is that the amount of energy consumed by Bitcoin at this point is a rounding error, right? Uh, it is literally immeasurable. It is, it, is a, it is just a rough guess the best they can. So we'll link to the Cambridge uh, Index, but even that you have to take with a grain of salt. You know, they try, but I don't know. I think we have to be real about the fact that Bitcoin uses energy because it's one of the best things about Bitcoin. So I don't think we even have to try to hide that fact. What we have to talk about is what's the most sensible way to generate that energy? What's the clean way to generate that energy? And how could we use Bitcoin to help invest in areas that could transition us to cleaner, better, sustainable energy? And I think the answers there are really, really positive, And they give me, they actually give me hope for the future. 
We're not there yet. We're, we're too busy thinking about anything that uses more energy bad. And we haven't really come to the realization that if we're ever going to grow as a society and a civilization, more energy consumption is inevitable. It scales with the growth of society and the advancement of civilization. So we just have to come to terms on how we're going to generate that electricity in a sustainable way. And Bitcoin will use some of that. But you know what? When we invent replicators and transporters, they're going to make Bitcoin look like a tiny little use of energy, right? And then when we invent time travel and portals, or whatever it is we invent next, they're going to use an, an incredible amount of energy and electricity. And we shouldn't shy away from that. We should figure out how to generate that sustainably. I mean, there are a lot of things happening here because I think that people who are upset about Bitcoin's energy usage, on the one hand, I think they're not aware how little energy Bitcoin uses compared to many other things in the world, such as you know cruise ships and the steel industry and tumble dryers. At the same time, when I say that, it's whataboutism. I'm using whataboutism. I'm saying, don't look at this. What about this? And that's a very frustrating argument for people because it feels like it's deflecting. I think if we go a level deeper, there might actually be a fundamental viewpoint that Bitcoiners have that is a little bit more positive than people who are concerned about energy usage. And what I'm talking about is when Chris talks about a future where we have replicators and transporters and portals, all the technology from Star Trek, this is a very positive future. This is a very bright future of you know, people living well and having, you know, ma almost magical technology to improve the quality of their lives. Whereas I think that the energy debate is a bit, um, a bit more negative in the sense that there's a perception that the world has limited resources and that human civilization draws down those resources in a non-sustainable way. And so we actually have to limit human consumption and limit the use of energy so that we can sort of baby our limited resources into the future for as long as possible. And I think that in some ways, both point of views are right to a certain degree. It's just that, you know, Bitcoin uses energy. Everything that's useful uses energy. And so I think that if you take the mental shortcut of saying that energy usage is sort of like immoral or bad or something, that really is not a logically consistent point of view, because that means that watching Netflix is immoral, using your computer is immoral, driving your car is immoral. You know, obviously putting carbon in the atmosphere has a cost. Is it immoral? I don't think so. I think that's pushing the responsibility for climate change and for environmental problems onto individuals in a way that is not productive. And I think that it's frankly a marketing tactic used by you know large entities like cor certain corporations and maybe even governments that don't want to deal with this problem realistically at an institutional level and find it easier to just sort of blame people for behavior that they really don't have an opportunity to change. I think your point is backed up and underscored when you just look at the energy consumption of industry and large business. It makes consumer consumption tiny. It dwarfs consumer energy usage. When you look at the effect of climate and the variables that seem to be impacting that, again, those generally come from corporations and military. Uh, when the Nord Stream pipeline was sabotaged, it released in a few moments decades worth of carbon emissions of methane into the atmosphere within within 30 seconds. Uh, I saw the number at some point. It was something like 30 years worth of Americans driving. It's, I don't know if that's the actual number, but it was an astronomical amount in one single event. 
And that was a military operation. That was something that could have been avoided by somebody. We don't know who, but by somebody. And it seems like these are the very institutions that are asking the individuals to cut back and to not have innovation, to not have things that move society forward. And I think the value of hard money is worth the energy. In fact, I think it is the conversion of energy into hard money that makes it hard, part of what makes it so hard. And by that same logic, the U.S. military uses 20% of the gasoline, the fuel that is burned in the United States. So they're by and large the largest single consumer of fossil fuels in the United States is the U.S. military. So why is the U.S. military allowed to burn diesel and jet fuel to, you know, fly around killing machines when individuals like us are supposed to wring our hands and get stressed out thinking about driving our car. It's clearly logically inconsistent. So sorry for the rant. It's a position that's evolving for me is don't shy away from the energy usage. It is one of the fundamental innovations of proof of work. And that's part of proof of work is the use of a real asset, a real world thing that is valuable to create these things in the digital space. We're taking a real thing in the actual world that we live and breathe in, and we're creating value that is scarce and unique in the digital space. And people just haven't gotten how effing big of an idea that is and how valuable that is. And the reason why that's really clever is because before you figured out how to do proof of work, there was no way to create digital scarcity. And why do we want digital scarcity? Well, it's because previous monetary systems like gold required physical scarcity to sort of create the trust that underlied those systems. In a digital monetary system without proof of work, which is our fiat system, which is our bank accounts and our Fed wires and our ACH transfers and SWIFT, since there isn't proof of work, you need KYC and regulation to enforce rules in this system. And the enforcement of rules cannot be equal. It can't be fair. And not everyone can participate. And so it's fundamentally exclusionary. With proof of work, now we have a way to participate in a monetary system without permission and without trust. We can do it trustlessly. And that's very cool because it means that people who previously were too poor to be banked using the traditional system can enjoy financial services and the use of digital money with Bitcoin. It means that people can accept payments from anywhere in the world. It now means that people who live in economies that aren't doing too well can now work in economies that are doing well. And in a certain sense, maybe tech workers are sweating a little thinking about all of the smart people in India who could now do their job remotely and be paid in Bitcoin. On the other hand, you know, that's a great leg up for people who previously didn't have opportunities. So, you know, these these are very complex issues. Whenever there's a big change, there's going to be some winners and some losers. But I think with Bitcoin on the whole, everyone wins quite a bit compared to our current system. Yeah. And the current system, as somebody who spent seven years working at a local bank with just 40 branches and about a thousand employees. Right. So it's not this is nowhere near the scale of the big banks. We had like 120 servers and also a mainframe with a whole bunch of hardware running 24-7 just to manage 40 branches for a Washington State-only bank. So if you can just scale that up, you can imagine the kind of infrastructure in data center energy costs that it takes to run the traditional banking system. So we may find, if there was some sort of transition, a net benefit and reduction in energy costs, though perhaps not. I just wanted to also say thank you to a couple of boosters who came in with some nice amounts, but no message. 
We got 20,000 and 202 sats from C-dubs, and we got 5,000 sats from Scott. And we also have folks that are doing the sat streaming and just streaming along as they listen. Thank you, everybody. I'm sorry we don't call you out each week, but it really means a lot, and we appreciate it. I've also now set up a uh, UNRL, or what is they called? A lightning U- I'm, I'm an old man. I'm sorry. But an LNURL, whatever they are, Chris Lass at getalby.com. I'm going to try it out. I didn't realize it was so stupid easy with Alby, but that might be useful for those of you that are oaking it up. Chris Lass at getalby.com. But thank you, everybody who boosted in. Speaking of Alby, it's a great way to just boost from the web without having to switch podcast apps. Getalby.com. You can top it off directly using MoonPay in the app. Then have a, head over to the podcast index. Find the old Bitcoin dad pod on there and you can boost right in from the web once you got Alby topped off. Or join the revolution and get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com and enjoy the fancy podcasting Tito features, transcripts and chapters and a lot more. Just depends on the podcast you listen to. And there's new stuff coming all the time. Newpodcastapps.com and they have boosts integrated right the frick in. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, March 31st, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here as always with me going to El Salvador one day. Woo, it's going to happen. Adopting Bitcoin. We're coming at you. We're coming. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time. 